Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. Now, this is the second in a two-part episode which I recorded with Dominic Scriven, the chairman of Dragon Capital. Now, if you haven't listened to the first episode, I would recommend going back to that and listening to that one first and then listening to this episode. And I pick up with Dominic by discussing the merits of stakeholder capitalism versus shareholder capitalism. This is the Why Invest podcast. I wonder, do you think we're asking too much of business leaders and managers of these companies to think more broadly about incentives and think more about stakeholder capitalism rather than shareholder capitalism? What I mean by stakeholder capitalism is that you're not just looking out for the, the profitability of your company, you are also looking out for the customers of your company, the employees of your company and also the shareholders. I mean, is it too much of an ask to ask the managers to look out for all those things? Well, Milton Friedman would um, quite vigorously have said, yes, it's far too much. Companies don't have any business getting involved in anything other than profits. And he said that, I think, in the 1980s. But, you know, I don't think that approach, I don't think culture, I don't think society would uphold that approach anymore. What's changed? I tell you what's changed in my view is, well, I think there are a number of drivers, but this word sustainable, which also is a term that was defined by Gro Harlem Brundtland. You won't remember, Doug, will you? But she was the uh, Norwegian PM and then went to the UN. And she defined sustainable development. This was at a time where the issues weren't climate change, actually, but the issues were as they call it, north-south development, the notion of equity in development between developed and developing countries that was seen as the north and the south. And Grow Harlem Brundtland defines sustainable development as development which allows one generation to meet its needs without compromising the ability of successive generations to do the same. And Plainly, that is not happening. I think it was plain in the 80s, but it's plain as a pikestaff now that there is very little about the way we lead our lives which is sustainable. I think the pressures that emanate from the human species are legion and worrying, if not extremely alarming. It's interesting that the buzzword is save the planet. A friend of mine was saying the other day, the planet, we don't need to worry about a planet. <laughs> the planet is, has been here and is going to be here a long way. It's actually save ourselves and allow successive generations to have some form of existence that is not too damaged by the way we live now. I think that's what's changed. And I think there's all sorts of analogies, aren't there? But taking black hydrocarbons out of the ground and turning them into gold nuggets in a bank account while future generations are not going to be able to live a predictable existence is mm. yeah but do you think the answer is taking rare earth metals out of the ground and a little bit of black stuff out of the ground and turning them into electric cars is that part of the solution i just wonder Beware the unintended consequences of you know, today's actions. And I wonder if you can comment perhaps on the sort of 
incentives from government to push us into so-called new greener solutions. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? And that's why I said at the outset I was a little apprehensive because this whole subject is so vast and consuming and one doesn't really, to a large extent, we don't know the consequences of our actions. And that's why in in this whole ESG area, there's the concept of um, impact investing, isn't there? It's a whole... Mm -hmm. Well, let's just draw the distinction. What's the distinction between impact investing and, and ESG in your mind? I'd suggest, I'm not sure there probably is a formal definition, I'd suggest that impacting investing seeks to demonstrate positive non-financial ESG outcomes. And it is a bubbling rather than burgeoning, I think, asset class. But actually, I would prefer a strategy of low impact investing on the basis that we can't be sure of the consequences of our actions. And you mentioned governments. Governments are in a tricky position, aren't they? That's why neither you nor I are a politician. Yet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm aware of vast, I think we're all aware, aren't we, of vast subsidies that in one way or another are used to support hydrocarbon extraction and consumption, which seems to be an unquestioned contributor to climate change. And equally, there are vast sums in subsidies for agriculture, which itself results in negative impacts on on the climate and on the global habitat and biodiversity. And so there you've got governments demonstrably impacting negatively on the concept of sustainability or ESG. So why are they doing that? Well, you know, it's it's a question of politics, isn't it? Who do you think is, should be responsible? I mean, if you're um, taking an existential look at this, I mean, should it be governments or should it be consumers? Should it be investment managers like yourself? Should it be corporates? You know, where do you think this sort of shared responsibility should should lie? Well, as you say, it's shared, Doug. So I think every individual, when they get out of bed in the morning, has got to think about what they do and how they do it. To me, that's a question of fundamental personal philosophy. And how do you communicate that to someone at the bottom rung of society where actually, you know, their Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's safety and security. That's all they're, they're worried about. It's like getting through the day rather than bigger topics like climate change and sustainability. How does one communicate that? Does one need to? I'm not sure that that's absolutely, you know, I think one of the issues in ESG as a subject matter is there's an enormous amount of finger wagging. So I think one big issue about ESG is the journey and how we navigate it. I think another big issue is the tone Mm. in which ESG is discussed and debated. And I think this is a really tricky one because if you tell people you know, sort of like it is, the bald facts are pretty terrifying. And a natural human response to terror is to close down and not engage. And indeed, that's what's happening. So at the other end, there is an approach to make the discussion inclusive and therefore to be so diplomatic that no messaging can be achieved. An example of this would be population, you know, the UN's discussions on population for example, which is the biggest 
um, threat to the future of the human species. Let's get back to thinking about frontier markets, because a lot of frontier markets are in the eye of the ecological storm. So, you know, the stakes are high. Do you think that that means that the companies that operate there are, are more sensitive to these sort of ecological factors? Um, and I wonder if there are any examples that you can give of companies that either you've invested or that you've sort of interacted with that prove that. Well, we've done an exercise in rating I suppose it's more studying the rating of sovereigns. That's an interesting subject on its own is how do you rate a sovereign for ESG? But the results of that show that you have a U shape and at the very lowest level of development, ESG scores are high, really because there's been, it's this point of low impact. (laughs) So a country like Myanmar. For example, uh, for example, for example, you know, total installed power capacity in Myanmar is, I think, probably less than twenty thousand megawatts. You know, that's two gigawatts. That's neither here nor there. For example, yeah. So let's say Myanmar. I mean, there are issues in Myanmar, as we know, deforestation and drugs and uh, you know all of that. But just from a conventional ESG, uh, it would be bad on the G, but on the E, and probably on the S as well. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So maybe not Myanmar, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Bhutan? Bhutan. Yes, good, yes. So you have a very high score there because there's low impact. And then as you develop, as countries develop, economies develop, they drop down ESG charts because they, um, they scour and pillage and exploit and extract and their drivers are, you know, strong developmental drivers and they build scale, et cetera. And they are having impact, which is why they're quote unquote successful developing economies. And then and then as you get to the very rich developed end, ESG scores begin to rise again. So that would be a comment on nations or on on different economies. As to companies, I think where companies are where you can demonstrate good scores in ESG is in G and S. I think that remains quite firmly in the grasp of the owners and directors and the managers of a a company. That's possible to achieve. It's possible to mess up and it's possible to achieve. I think the E is is much more complex. You know, depends how you pose the question. You know, it's back to your point about engagement. Are we talking about a business that was coal and is trying to transform itself away from coal on one view, that's pretty positive. Or are we talking about somebody who's never been in coal? How do we rate those two against each other? I don't know. You know, that, that's a much more nuanced. Well, let's think about measurement because you know, in traditional boring finance land, it's actually quite easy to measure cash flow generation, earnings trajectory, cash trajectory, dividends, yields, you know, it's easy to map out a lot of these metrics and meet and re-meet company management and, and hold them to account on, on numbers that are on a page. Do you think we need a similar framework for ESG factors? And I suppose in the same way we have sort of generally accepted accounting principles, um, should we have something similar for ESG? By Jove, yes. We desperately need something, yes. And And, and there are, of course, as we all know, vast numbers of organizations all represented by letters of the alphabet that are attempting to tackle this 
you know, I, I support, I do genuinely support the initiative because, as you rightly say, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And so we've got to approach some way of doing that. The streams of thought are emerging from the different professions, aren't they? So probably the, one of the best known is the UNPRI, mm. Principles of Responsible Investment, which is a sort of global citizenry approach. Of which I think you're a signatory. Dragon Capital is a signatory. Yes, we are. Yes, 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 we are. Absolutely, yeah. So too is Waverton, by the way. Sorry. Last plug. Well, indeed. I, I, I think I knew that, so I didn't <laughs> bother to comment on it, actually. Um, then there's, you know, there's a stream from the accounting profession, which these days, you know, talks a lot about assurance. So providing some assurance that certain standards and principles are being adhered to. There's a further stream, specifically in area of climate, which uh, involves Bloomberg and Carney and the TCFD, Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, and the accounting professions, the SASB, isn't it? So there's all these things out there, and uh, we still lack. I mean, it's an evolution in process. It's a fuzzy evolution, and actually we have our, our head of research did some analysis on plotting, he plotted um, a scatter chart of companies that were mapped by two of our ESG data providers. So one along the, I won't name them, but one along the x-axis, and one along the y-axis, to see if there was any correlation between how they measured their companies. And, and you put it up on the board, and it, there is zero correlation. I mean, it's extraordinary. It's, it is and I suppose the, the key point there is that at the moment, it is very, very, very fuzzy and quite difficult for, you know, even these entities that spend all their days looking at these factors and looking for changes in behavior. So how do you think we can accelerate and get to a point where we, you know, have some accepted principles of, of ESG reporting? Yeah, uh... That really is a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, I, I was looking recently at the rating agencies and how they rate ESG, and it's a bit of a blunderbuss, isn't it? You know, they all more or less have governance at 50%, but then some have social at 25 and environment at 25, and some have social at 30 and environment at 20. You know, it's all very slapdash. And um, therefore, as you say, very difficult to, to compare at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, I'll tell you what we do, though, and I'm not trying to, I can only tell you what we're doing. So we have, of course, engaged with the compliance aspect of this because it's, it's important that all of our colleagues know where to look and we provide this sort of scoring thing for individual companies. But actually, our approach is driven by a qualitative view to risk management. So what are, we, we've identified what are the for us and actually you know a, a sub point here is that it's absurd to talk about es and g you know they shouldn't belong together g is on its own uh, everybody in our business has to be a, a governance warrior otherwise they, they won't survive s depends on where you are you know there are good s's and bad s's aren't there mm. but you know for us it's the actions all in the e and so within the e we've looked at what are the three main areas of risk? And two of them are to do with climate. And one of them is to do with biodiversity. And this is an approach, by the way, that is laid out. And I commend to your listeners, TCFD, 
because it's put together. I'm not saying the others aren't any good, but it's put together by people in the financial sector. And so it's infused with an awareness of how the financial sector works and you know what, what we can do and can't do. And they basically talk about four levels, a level of a strategy towards, this is particularly climate, but I think it can work for other things, the way that you govern that strategy, what is your governance over that strategy? What are the risks that you see and how do you measure them? And lastly, how do you set your direction for change in the future? And I think that can apply, that set of four ways of tackling the problem can apply across the ESG space, actually. In our case, we've identified physical climate risk, you know, which is the risk of floods and storms and droughts and temperature. And we've identified what they call transition risk. So that's the likelihood of a carbon tax, basically, or the cost of carbon being imported into economic life. And lastly, biodiversity. The two climate ones are are live issues for most people, aren't they? So we've scored our portfolio. So last year, we produced a value at risk for what might occur in our portfolios as a result of likely climate events modelled by a climate modeller. And then we've scored the portfolios for production of tonnes of CO2 equivalent. That, to me, seems ahead of the curve, Dominic. Well, this is why I say it's a matter of philosophy, isn't it? It's how you get out of bed in the morning. Well, I agree with that. And I think it, it kind of went back to my perhaps slightly flippant point about Gallic doctrine. Um, you know, no one likes being told what to do. But you know, if you get out of bed in the morning and you know, know that it is the right thing to do, that is a very different philosophy. And it's an important distinction to make, yeah. Yes, I think that's right, isn't it? That's absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, inherently, what informs our approach is that you don't have to be terribly smart to realise that over the long term, these things are going to not just impact our lives, but, you know, more directly, they're going to impact our businesses and our returns and our, and our ability to survive and compete and be relevant. I mean, to me, that's plain as a pike stuff. The most interesting one, I just want to go back to your metric point, is our third area, which is um, biodiversity. And we are deeply engaged with a professor at Exeter University and also now a university in Vietnam as well, trying to create metrics for biodiversity. The aim is to really have some simplified metrics because biodiversity is really complex, but by which people can you know, measure their positive or negative impact on biodiversity. In fact, we're not talking about dollar numbers on this because markets provide the dollar numbers. Markets are very efficient at that. What we have to do is to provide the biodiversity metrics. And then we'd like to find a way of securitizing those in the same way as people have securitized emissions trading. I got off to a difficult start. Yeah, but people say that the carbon market is, it's a market in carbon. It's actually not. It's actually a market in how much it costs to emit carbon, isn't it? And I think it's now pretty well established. Absolutely. Absolutely. Going back to this sort of standardization of of ESG factors, 
where do you think the limitation is? Where do you think we stop? Where, I mean, ES and G you know, is one thing, but do you think there's a limit to what we codify and what we can measure? And is there a limit to codifying ethics? Well, a former prime minister of this country used the term the antiseptic effects of sunlight to describe transparency. And I think that's a good place to start, telling people what you're doing. And an early career mentor to me said, whatever you're about to do, just submit it to the journalist test. So imagine that that thought or that plan or that proposed act is being written about by a journalist. How are you going to feel about that? And I think that's an approach to take with ESG is to assume that journalists know all that you're doing and maybe to try and tell people what you're doing, actually, in the knowledge that that will itself impact on your behavior. And let's look forward and try and be as optimistic as we can. And let's pretend that we get through the compliance point. We're into the well into the risk management and probably thinking more about the business opportunities. What do you think the ESG landscape looks like? I mean, do you think we're still going to be using the, the phrase ESG? Do you think it would have died a death and just because it's, it's so implicit in everyone's investment process? Yeah, I don't think we'll be talking ESG. I agree. Doug, I think it's, you know, it's just too much a random combination of factors that are so vast in themselves that they will collapse beneath their own inherent contradictions and complexities. We can backdate the title of this podcast. We can change it to sustainability in frontier markets, perhaps, as opposed to ESG in frontier markets. Yes, yes. Then what? With a view of being um, of being relevant forever. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which is what we all want to be, of course. I really don't know. I think it's fascinating to think how the landscape is going to evolve. I mean, it seems to me that future generations, I would include you in that, Doug, are increasingly intolerant of business as usual as the climate but if you're thinking about, if you were talking to yourself way back when you started Dragon Capital, for example, you know, how close to your heart were some of these sustainability targets? I mean, you know, has this always been in your DNA? I sort of sense that you were up the curve or you were certainly ahead of some of your competitors. As you might recall, Doug, my, I have a very strong personal driver around the natural world, which leads me very much to environment, biodiversity issues. And that's been my sort of scale as one progresses through career is, is to measure one's distance to and impact on biodiversity. So I think that's that. And Dragon is you know, very pronounced in biodiversity, I think. The other stuff, climate, I mean, I mean, why does anybody need persuading about climate? I don't know. Dominic, final question. What, what advice would you give to our younger listeners who are maybe coming out of university uh, or maybe they're in their first jobs who are working in financial services? What advice would you give to them in terms of the skills that they need to equip themselves for the future in our industry? Now, listen up, Jago. <laughs> Jago, my son, my four-year-old son. <laughs> 
that question depends on where one's standing, isn't it? I mean, if, if we're talking in an ESG conversation, Doug, I think ESG is a massive growth area. I think one has to um, choose whereabouts in it one wants to be and definitely to accept its journey so you can't see where it's going to go. But I think this concern with, you know, GDP is an inadequate measure. GDP always was an inadequate measure. It was never envisaged as anything more than a tool in the policymakers' kit. It's become the holy grail, and people have become myopically focused on GDP. I think the biggest change, sorry, going back to your last question, is that we have to re-engineer GDP to include not just the obvious issues, that why is a mother's care for her children not included in GDP, but if she works, her child carer's efforts are included in GDP. You know, that sort of ridiculous anomaly leading directly to social care, which is obviously very much in the news in the UK these days. And then through to the broader issues of, of the planetary space we inhabit, uh, natural capital, for example, which is the calculated sum of the goods and services provided by the planet to enable human existence is when it was last calculated, which is a few years ago now, but was recently re-quoted by Macron in 2019. It's $144 trillion a year against GDP, which is about $100 trillion a year. So I don't know whether the numbers are correct, but just contemplating that fact that human existence is now so large that it touches on the ability of the planet to provide those goods and services. And if we don't include that in our calculations, we're going to do ourselves a very, very, and uh, in the future, a very, very great disservice. So if I was starting my career, again, I'd head right into this area. I think it's fascinating. Mm. I don't quite know where we were going to come the other day, but I think it's absolutely fascinating. Whereas, you know, the job of a conventional fund manager, you know, one might argue is going to be replaced by Siri. Dominic Scriven, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Doug. Entertaining conversation. Thank you for listening to the Wine Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Dominic Scriven, the Chairman of Dragon Capital. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode, or indeed the series, why not like us or subscribe to us and let a friend or colleague know? The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.